Welcome to Cities Unmasked, the U of T School of Cities sponsored podcast about the ways that COVID-19 has highlighted and deepened the contours of urban inequality while amplifying the need for an actualizing tangible action. For each episode in this limited series, we will explore a different lens of cities of inequality in conversation with Lubna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. This pandemic is just showing us that we've always had the resources and the means to help the communities that are needing the help, you know? It's just who do we prioritize and who do we care about? Recognizing what your community needs and taking it upon yourself in a legal way to, um, you know, transform the space and to make it your own and to take your claim on it. People who have like resource constraints be inadvertently excluded out of green spaces because they recognize that if, if they get sick, they don't have that kind of like access to healthcare. Why is that money going to one big park in an affluent area instead of, you know, in the entire park system? So who are these parks for and and what kind of residents are being prioritized? So today I, Victoria, will be discussing physical and mental health within the city landscape amidst and following the COVID-19 pandemic. The topics of suicide, self-harm, cancer, illness, etc. may come up over the course of this podcast. If these topics may be upsetting or triggering, this episode may not be for you. Never fear, though, we have seven more that you can check out in the meantime. Over the past few months, many of us worldwide have been quarantining, practicing social distancing, and wearing masks in order to limit the spread of COVID-19 within our communities and around the world. But with these emergency measures in place, the issues of accessibility that permeate our healthcare systems and beyond have been magnified to great extents. As can be expected from a global pandemic, COVID-19 has left many people feeling stressed, afraid, angry, lonely, and everything in between. Many people are dealing with situations they have never encountered before. Fear for the safety of their elderly family members, grief over the unexpected loss of loved ones, fear of leaving their home, financial uncertainty, and forced isolation. While many of us struggle with the lack of control in our own lives, the impact of the pandemic has not been equally distributed. For seniors, the urban space was not an easy environment to navigate even before the threat of coronavirus ran strong. The fast pace, the dense populations, the limited transit options, and the complex architectural layouts have made many cities unattractive to the senior population. With the COVID-19 pandemic, these factors have made the city something to avoid at all costs. In an article from John Hopkins University entitled The Impact of COVID-19 on Older Adults, they note the ways in which COVID-19 has affected seniors differently than youth. With long-term care homes going into lockdown, many residents have had to go months without contact with their loved ones and face the threat of a residence outbreak on their own. Others have been left without caregivers who may have posed additional risks to their well-being. Even for those who are able to care for themselves, leaving their home poses a high risk that many don't want to be forced to take. In many cases, seniors have been sidelined and forced to fend for themselves as the many forms of assistance they rely on, such as grocery deliveries, bill management, etc., have become inaccessible. For others, specifically marginalized groups, the mental challenges of the pandemic have been quite significant. The University of British Columbia conducted a survey in partnership with CAMH that indicated 6% of those surveyed said they experienced suicidal thoughts and feelings during the outbreak. This proportion rises to 18% of those with pre-existing mental health challenges, 16% of Indigenous people, and 15% of those with a disability. Amidst the pandemic, those with pre-existing mental health conditions were found to be 2.5 times more likely to feel depressed, three times more likely to have had trouble coping, four times more likely to have had suicidal thoughts, and four times more likely to have self-harmed. 
The fear surrounding the virus, as well as the lack of social connection, which can play an essential role in recovery and coping, has created a very toxic environment for those who are already facing mental health challenges. While online counseling options work for some, some people need those in-person consultations to really feel supported. Yet for the 55% of the world's population, yet for 55% of the world's population, according to the United Nations, who lack social insurance or social assistance, access to any mental or physical health care is sparse. While the virus has yet to take hold in many third world countries, the danger it poses does not go unacknowledged. Many countries can't afford a pandemic. According to CTV News, for South Sudan, a country of 11 million, only four ventilators and 24 ICUs exist. For Uganda, there is one ICU bed available for every 1 million people. Many third world countries also do not have the luxury of being able to lock down, with issues of hunger already running afoot. Safety amidst this pandemic has become a luxury. As we in Ontario begin to enter stage three and some aspects of life start to return to normal, it is important to consider the impacts that have been made on our most marginalized populations. Who has had their lives turned upside down? Who has not received adequate support? And how do we begin to move forward and commence reparations? Experts say there is no doubt the pandemic has destroyed many lives. People have lost uh, loved ones, uh, they've uh, lost money, uh, they've lost the status. Canada's Mental Health Association recently conducted a survey of Canadians examining the impact of COVID-19. 38% of people surveyed say their mental health has declined because of COVID. 46% say they feel anxious and worried. 14% are having trouble coping and 6% have had suicidal thoughts seen an increase in young males seeking help with anxiety and depression. One aggravating stressor, moving back in with their families during the pandemic. This is something that we have never seen before, that, you know, uh, multi-generations live all the time together, very often with very little space from each other. I think the first thing is to think about structure. I mean, that's one of the reasons why work is so good for us. I mean, you know, there's nothing almost more stressful than just being unemployed with nothing to do all day. Indeed. Um, so if you're at home, develop a routine. If you're working, obviously work from home. Work in the same way as you would work from work with, with set, set hours and, and set tasks. If you're not working at home, uh, then give yourself some tasks and get yourself into a routine, whether it's looking after the children, whether it's helping with other people who need caring for, um, or else take on some new projects. Okay, so uh, getting into some of these guiding questions. So all of us are obviously experiencing this pandemic differently. Um, so where else have you guys seen that the access to well-being has become marginalized amid the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, they've instituted this thing where like everybody needs to wear masks, which is obviously important to prevent the spread of disease. But I think a lot of us haven't really taken the time to consider how that impacts people that rely on lip reading uh, to get by in like day to day life. You know, for those who are hearing impaired or deaf, I think a lot of us haven't really considered the impact that that's going to have. You know, now you have all of these additional barriers because you can no longer lip read. I think that's definitely a good point, especially considering that 55% um, of communication is visual. When, when we're talking about people seeking healthcare, miscommunication can be, um, you know, like a leading cause of medical oh, error. To that effect, I think there was this product out in the market, it's called Clear Mask. It's like the first transparent mask with full face visibility. So it's kind of like a shield. Um, and so you can see people's mouth as, as it's moving while also offering 
safety. So it'll be interesting to see if if adoption of, of these sort of masks can increase. How much would a mask like that cost? I can't imagine it's it's very affordable since there's no economies of scale to really keep the cost down. Yeah. So that's that's an interesting question. And, and the prices it's so uh, twenty four masks for sixty four uh, sixty seven US dollars, I think. Wow, that's expensive. Really expensive. Because like there's like this gap. There might be a role for governments to maybe like subsidize this further. As far as I know, this is the only company that's that's making it. Maybe if like more more producers enter the market over time, it might it might lead to like cheaper see-through masks. I think you talking about the price raises another like really interesting concern about like access and who has the funds to buy masks that are clear that can allow for lip reading or you know multiple masks so that you can put them in the wash. Sometimes you have to wear the same mask on different outings and then there's a risk of co- cross contamination. Or in the beginning of the qu- of quarantine when there was a shortage of masks and gloves and PPE, not just for individuals but for essential workers. A lot of people were saying that they had to share with their coworkers or with their family members. And it just, again, is like back to the whole idea of who has the funds, A, who has the ability to, you know, even like technology to like log on or be tech savvy to know how to navigate online systems. Because a lot of things are moving online now when it comes to like grocery pickup and delivery, even at your front door. A lot of people are opting for online retail um, in many different fashions. And Amazon is a company that's been at the forefront of the discussion during the pandemic. Zoom as well for meeting platforms. And so this is increasing uh, the revenue for these companies that are profiting off of this sudden need, this big change, you know. Um, They have the advantage here to mark up their prices. Jeff Bezos is on track to be the first trillionaire in the entire world by... I think it's 2026, I want to say. I know for myself, so like I work in a fast food restaurant. Uh, like we've been fortunate enough, like I'm so grateful that I, ha- I work in a good place where, you know, they provide us with face masks every day. You get like a new reusable one. We get sanitizer. We've gotten face shields and stuff. And, you know, so that's like, it feels really nice to be like, you know, I'm taking this risk and I'm I'm going into work even though with everything going on and you feel like you are supported there because um, you have all of this this stuff accessible to you. But I have so many other friends that like work in like grocery stores and like other restaurants and stuff that, you know, they're expected to bring in their, o- their own face mask every day. And like, if you don't have one or you haven't gotten gotten your hands on one quick enough, then you might be missing out on a day's work. Feeling safe is a very big part of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And like like you said, if like they feel like they're taking enough precautions for themselves and even like you said, you feel like the restaurant is doing that for you as an employee, then you feel more comfortable going into work and you're not, you know, completely anxiety ridden. But, you know, the interesting part is watching like people that are coming through uh, to get food because you see like like the like all extents of people like preparation, you know, there's some people that come through and they're, they have like absolutely no protection or anything. And those are the ones that are always complaining. <laughs> and then you have the other extent where they're like, you know, they're very protected. I feel like you're like, you're working, you're working somewhere and you're putting all this like protection on for them. And then when people are like courteous 
enough to wear it for you it just makes you feel good you know each person has a different level of comfort but now that masks are mandatory in toronto and like in the gta i believe as well um it just adds a little extra level of safety and protection for people who might be carriers or high risk and that you know need that extra bit of like comfort to feel good I think bringing it back to, you know, excess income um, and minimum wage workers, I was I was kind of like, just in your restaurant, has has there has there been change in how many how many workers there have? Because in May, I was reading something about how 50% of those who earn $16 an hour or less, they either lost their jobs or their hours were reduced because of COVID. Has that has that changed since May? Or has 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 that situation improved because i recognize that you know just just not having a job or not having an income can be can be a huge stressor for for many a lot of the times like fast food workers and just like service workers in general like whether it's like in a grocery store or just any retail store kind of become the brunt of um you know people's like issues that they're facing elsewhere in their life that are kind of coming coming out in those in those areas, like some little thing goes wrong and then suddenly it turns into this giant thing. And it's not necessarily what you've done. It's just kind of um, all the other things that they're dealing with in their life. Yeah. Um, so I know like the first couple of months, it was it was definitely a lot more challenging for us to kind of uh, be dealing with all that. But I think now we're kind of reaching mm-hmm. a point where people are like, oh, my gosh, like you have to wear all this stuff. Like, thank you for being here and everything. Um so that's nice. It's kind of like we've kind of reached that like turnaround point, but um, I don't know. I think we we were pretty like under we were pretty understanding like back then too, because it was like we're all kind of stressed. We're all kind of going through this. So okay. So then the other thing that I kind of want to just discuss on this topic is. How can municipal governments and city planners better support those with physical and mental health challenges amid the pandemic and just beyond uh, when we're designing mm-hmm. urban spaces or altering them? During COVID-19, you know, everything is sort of framed like, oh, now that there's COVID, now we have to make these changes. But, you know, like these are discussions that we were having in my planning classes prior to the pandemic. And it's just interesting to see, like, you know, we talked about how like now all these issues are like amplified tenfold talking about these things and doing the work to try to make these changes at council meetings at you know protests at so many different levels and scales i think a lot of these accessibility measures when we put them in place they aren't just supporting those with the accessibility needs but they're kind of supporting everybody yeah with curb cuts you have you know it was designed so that you can support those with wheelchairs so they can come on and off the sidewalks but when you put that in there, it's also helping those like mothers with strollers and stuff so that it's easier for them to come off um, of the sidewalk and seniors as well. So they don't have to have that stuff down. So a lot of this stuff, when we we try and put these more like accessible designs into spaces, it's actually helping everybody. Like I was taking a planning seminar at UFT at the Scarborough campus and we specifically were looking to redesign Eglinton, Eglinton Avenue and then Finch Avenue uh, East. For accessibility needs, we put in increased lighting, we put in, you know, audio push buttons at sidewalks, we put in curb cuts, we, you know, all of those changes that should be part of the contemporary discussion, but that's, there seems to be some sort of lag. I think there was only one audio button on our entire streetscape. That's about four intersections and only one audio push button. I think it just really speaks volumes. 
I wanted to talk about the uh, mental health aspect of it as well. Um, so, you know, talking about like long wait times and isolation in the, the healthcare system. So I myself have a depression and anxiety and, you know, to get, uh, an appointment sometimes and to get even just initially into treatment takes a long time. So often when you're trying to reach out to a psychiatrist for medication, like you, you need medication, you know, like it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a really a safety issue for people and also just a quality of life issue. Um, and then often it's like five months to see a psychiatrist. Um, so really the only options in our healthcare system right now is either you go see a psychiatrist and wait five months or, oh, yeah. you know, if it's sure. not life threatening and you're not, you know, at risk of, of ending your life essentially, and now there's more people that are needing mental health treatment because everyone's dealing with isolation. More people are losing jobs. People are losing family members. It's affecting more and more people. So we're going to be facing a mental health crisis as well. The services for people that, that have those conditions right now, they're not being met their needs. So how can we expect to, to meet the needs of everyone else as well? I was actually like looking at a an article that came out with results from a study that was done by the CMHA Ontario, so the Canadian Mental Health Association, and they did a poll to highlight the mental health impacts of COVID nineteen. And they in one of the in one of the findings, they found that while sixty seven percent of Ontarians worry about the mental health impact on family and friends, fewer fifty three percent are concerned about their own mental health. So it's just interesting to see how it's sort of like a feedback loop. This, the study goes on to say that 79% of people in the province worry about what the future will look like after the outbreak is over. 87% are worried about the impact on the older generation, generation and 71% are worried about the younger generation. Nearly 90% is concerned about the impact on the economy and 69% are concerned about the impact on personal finances. So it seems like all of these other areas all swing back and lead back to mental health. I think too, you know, I know from like my personal experience, like I've tried uh, like both forms of counseling. I think for people that like speaking from my own experience, I guess, um, you know, one of the things I struggle with a lot is my anxiety, especially like in social settings and stuff. Um, So I find like online therapy options are a lot more comfortable, I guess. Like you don't have to go and like sit in front of somebody you don't know. but I think back to like what you were saying, Brittany, about we we're talking about like long wait times and stuff. I think one of the most frustrating things I found is it's like when you have to, you're trying to book an appointment like for the first time. And, you know, for me, I hate talking on the phone. And so, you know, you make that first call and then sometimes you have to call again and you have to call again. And then sometimes you go for your original consultation and you go and, you know, you you have to like tell people like what your issues are and stuff. And so you can kind of be matched with someone to chat with. And then a lot of the time that means once you get to the person, you have to tell your story all over again. Um, and I think it, the process that we have right now for kind of getting someone matched with a counselor or therapist or whatever you need um, can be just very draining and especially if someone's like really struggling a lot of the time you know Um, you're not reaching out until you're at that point where you're like okay i can't do this by myself i need help right now um Mm -hmm. and it doesn't 
it's never there right now. You have to like wait a couple months. You have to wait until things get all sorted out and stuff. And we just need a very, we just need a better system to deal with all of this. Mm -hmm. And do people have good Wi-Fi connections, right? Like if you're doing a, a video appointment, which a lot of healthcare services have been that, and also a lot of times these appointments are during the day. If your working hours don't align with those, you know, seeing any sort of practitioner, is that possible for you? People aren't focusing on, on themselves. Like you said, you know, things going on. If you're an essential worker, you don't have necessarily time to, to, to think about yourself. You're just trying to survive and function and do your best. So, you know, your health, your mental or physical health can certainly take a back seat. Like you, you folks have talked about the cons for online treatment, um, because like we're talking about, you know, like the pandemic kind of like exacerbating, you know, yes. like existing mental health issues or like, um, you know, like generating new ones. It's like important for them to access therapy and a way to do that is via online treatment. And so there have been a bunch of studies comparing the efficacy of online treatment versus face to face. Um, I think I think there was this one in the Journal for Effective Disorders in 2014, which found that online treatment was just as effective as face to face treatment for depression. Um, and there was there was also this one in 2018 which found that online cognitive behavioral therapy is effective acceptable and practical healthcare um and so it's i th i guess it's like interesting to me to kind of like see which subpopulations um are better at accessing online treatment and how we can kind of like maybe adjust online treatment to make it better for those who 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 are more suited to face-to-face -face, um, treatment. People don't have a lot of time to go to that place or, you know, there's not a practitioner close to where they live. You know, if you're struggling with something, mm -hmm. problems with mobility or, you know, with, with mental health, it's it can be difficult to go into that place physically it's it's a lot more mental and physical effort so certainly having the ease of having it online you don't necessarily have to go to that place it just makes accessing care that much easier yeah definitely so so while we, while, while we think about you know like what changes may need to be made to current health support systems it might be interesting to to um see how um, online therapy or online mental health support kind of like changes or evolves to to accommodate for you know the less possibility for face-to-face -face interactions Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. Yeah.
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so the average wait time is in Ontario is 67 days for counseling and therapy. Um, and so the longest wait for services is up to two and a half years. So your point about, you know, like needing mental health services right now, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely something to, to consider, um, when, when thinking about maybe the government investing more resources into them, because yeah, sick, sick waiting 67 days for counseling or therapy on, on, on average. And that it can be even longer if you need medication. Yeah. Like for, for a psychiatrist, it's it's interesting because it's seen as a specialist. Like if I have a, I don't know, ache in my foot and I need to see a podiatrist, but it's not super pressing, it can also take the same amount of time. But if I really need to see a mental health professional for, you know, medication, it's not necessarily prioritized the same way. Like you can see, you know, a family doctor to start on medication, which is what I did initially when I was younger, but he did it like he didn't really know. He did one, you know, psych, um, you know, term during his residency. Like he hasn't, he's not qualified necessarily to be treating my mental health which is so complicated you go through medication and medication and medication even psychiatrists they don't it's like okay we'll see if this one works for you nope okay uh this one now okay no um maybe this one like it's really kind of this long 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 process because they don't know where your neurobiology is really at you know just trying to figure it out you know day by day so to start you know, at this kind of haphazard approach can really be a detriment to your end result and your care. Even just coming from like a brown household, for example, like a lot of these things are not talked about. There's a lot of stigma around mental health. And, you know, should you reach out for a therapist or should you even mm. take the step? How do I tell my parents? How do I even start these conversations? And will they understand there's a generational gap there? I think there's a lot of also mental barriers in terms of getting started when it comes to like navigating insurance and how to make a claim on um, what are your benefits, how to use those resources and how to use them correctly. And I think also a lot of times the fear stops you from, you know, reaching out or like taking those steps, having these open discussions and having the right tools, even just making like the resources more accessible, I think is a, like a great start. But they don't see it as something that's healthy and normal to talk about mental health or to like see a therapist or just like to like, you know, learn how to cope with your emotions. Instead, it's sort of like, oh, well, now it's like a really like inflammatory time uh, for me and I need to now make this like step. Coming from the brand community myself, mental illness stigma is definitely something that needs to be tackled. Uh, and, and this is reflected in st statistics regarding which ethnic groups are more likely to reach out for help. Um, I think what governments, the government of Canada or government of Ontario or mental health providers, um, what they can do, I, I think I think there's not a lot that they can do regarding 
mental illness stigma, but there's a lot that they could do regarding, you know, like lack of diversity among mental health providers, you know, like lack of culturally competent providers. Something that that I've I've thought often about has been language barriers. So um, mm-hmm. I I know folks older older people mm-hmm. who immigrated to to Canada later in their lives and they're mm-hmm. not they're not very good at expressing themselves in English um, and so for them to for that for English to kind of be the main language that's offered and not a lot of people not a lot of mental health providers that are that are offering their services in other other languages that that has been one of the barriers to their care absolutely you want to be able to connect with your your practitioner you know and be able to fully express yourself like that's really important to receiving the, the care you need i think culturally relevant care is is extremely important during the pandemic i, I like i don't know at least within my own circles mm-hmm. my social circles on social media and stuff and especially within the brown community a lot of um discourse has come forward people a lot of survivors are like telling sharing their stories on instagram on twitter you know whatever platforms are available to them about um, sexual assault and um, domestic violence that happens in these communities. Those instances have definitely been heightened due to the pandemic where you're sort of trapped in the same spaces. That's not a safe space for everybody to navigate, you know, and not have an escape. And that's not exclusive to just women. I know that. I know that men also suffer from abuse and mental health issues. And we definitely should not undermine that at all because that has definitely been sort of like a taboo topic to talk about. Women in India reached out to the local police station. When they went to the police station to tell the police officers that they were being beaten by their husbands, police officers actually went back into the community and spread that to their immediate family and said that they had went to seek help. So this created a very unsafe feedback loop. This makes it very difficult, culturally speaking, for a lot of women who are in these situations to seek help or to get out of these situations, like during the pandemic, how those same cultural trends might have repercussions. I remember reading something about how in some countries there's been a threefold increase in the prevalence of gender-biased violence um, during the COVID, COVID-19 pandemic. So, so what policies or what, what changes can be mm-hmm. put into place to kind of like to proactively deal with this issue considering it has it kind of has you know like a cyclical pattern if this is a topic that you are interested in more i would also recommend checking out our episode on the patriarchal city um if you are interested in some of the accessibility issues in different urban spaces that we were talking about i'd also recommend checking out the green city episode Um, But thank you so much, guys, for our discussion today, talking about, you know, physical health, mental health, and just overall access to to well-being amidst and beyond the pandemic. Uh, Yeah, so thank you for joining us and listening, and we will see you on the next episode. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to Cities Unmasked with Lumna Ali. Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. If you like our show and want to know more, please check out our Instagram page at Cities Unmasked. Or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. A special thank you goes out to the University of Toronto School of Cities.